So it's really diverse. It's not as hard as I just made it sound to encourage other people to participate because we've actually seen a lot of people set a goal for a year out and do the race. A lot of people who are moderate mountain bikers. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Gosh, I, I, it's my first episode back from being uh, being back from the Outdoor Media Summit out in Colorado. It was awesome. Uh, you know, it was a big get-together of folks in outdoor media from podcast hosts to bloggers, journalists, you know, CEOs, all, all kinds of cool stuff from, from folks from brands, folks from uh, publications, people from travel bureaus of different towns across America. It was it was really cool. And uh, they did some awards and your show, Adventure Sports Podcast, won best podcast episode of the year uh, for one of the episodes we did. So thanks to you for uh, listening and making this show happen. Honestly, it's all due to the audience. But yeah, it was pretty cool to see that and, and see some of the other shows in the industry and how, yeah, how, how folks are spreading the word about adventure sports and about adventure in general and about basically just getting outside. And today's episode, we're talking to Tyler McMahon. And he is, uh, he's an interesting dude. I met him through Athletic Brewing. Uh, that's my day job, by the way. Um, he's one of our ambassadors uh, for full transparency. But we were talking off, you know, off the side about this race he does called the Yak Attack in Nepal. Uh, he's been doing it for like six or seven years now. Uh, and it's the world's highest mountain bike race. And it takes place uh, right up there near Everest Base Camp. Um, it's a multi-stage race. It's an enduro. It's timed. It's 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 incredible. Uh, makes me want to go, but it's going to be happening next month. So I think there's a way to follow along. There's some links in the show notes if you're interested in, in learning more about it. Uh, but we're just going to talk about that. Talk about what it's like uh, to to live and work in Nepal. Um, Tyler has just fallen in love with Nepal and literally married someone from Nepal. And also owns a business there where he has employees and is always talking to folks there. So it's kind of interesting how a trip somewhere really changed his life. So I think uh, you're going to learn a lot from him. It's a really cool conversation. It's not the longest episode we've ever had, uh, hence the little bit longer show intro. But it was a really fascinating talk. And I'm sure he wouldn't mind if you reached out to him if you had any questions or were in, was interested in entering the race or had questions about the business he's running. Uh, that saves rainwater for individual households, which is pretty important work, specifically in Nepal and kind of how th things are structured. But anyway, uh, let's go ahead and jump into today's episode. And, and thanks again for making uh, the Adventure Sports Podcast one of the best shows in the outdoor industry. Tyler McMahon, how you doing? Pretty good. How about you? Good, good. Well, tell us, uh, tell us where you're coming from today. You're not calling from Nepal, I don't think, and uh, unless you, you know, pulled one over on me real quick. But where are you coming from today? And, and is that home for you? Yeah, it's uh, mostly home. I'm calling from Denver, Colorado. Uh, I was born and raised and grew up in Colorado. Spent my whole life here, so um, I'm hanging out in Denver the past uh, about eight months so far, and technically, it's home for me. So you've seen a lot of change over over your lifetime, then. 
Oh, how, how you how do you, how are you feeling about it? Is that why you're in Nepal most of the time? <laughs> no, no, I miss Colorado actually when I'm there. Uh, I have uh, I love Colorado. I love its climate and I love the adventures. Um, and I think a lot of the change is good, but there is a lot of stuff that's uh, pushing the locals out because of raised prices and you know second homes and things like that and. You know, after they legalized pot, there was a lot of people that came in uh, and didn't really respect Colorado, I think, uh, for a bit. And I think that's improved now that more states have legalized it, thankfully. So there's um, but it's all it's growing really fast. And I think I have uh, mostly positive, but definitely some mixed opinions about it. Oh, I can imagine. Well, tell yeah, us, you know, you grew up there. I assume you were into some adventure sports pretty young or from a family or, or just got into the mountains pretty young. I grew up in the mountains. I grew up in uh, Fairplay, Colorado. Uh, a lot of people won't know that name. You'll know South Park, of course. Um, I went to South Park High School. The show is not actually based on our town. Uh, they're from down the road. But um, it's right in the center of Colorado. It's about 10,000 feet. So I've been in the mountains since I was five. Uh, so I started skiing um, from when I was six. Uh, started running when I was 12. Uh, switched to snowboarding. But basically my years were whatever sport the high school had to offer because it was a small small school, except football. I didn't play football, but basketball and track. And then we'd go home. And after finished homework, we would uh, you know snowboard on little hills or – you know, obviously go to the resorts on the weekends. So I grew up doing both endurance running, long distance running and snowboarding uh, until I went to college. And that's where I picked up mountain biking as kind of a way to get the adrenaline and uh, keep my endurance up. Uh, I've been doing that ever since. Wow. What a cool part of the state. I love that part of the state. A lot of people are driving through fair play to go to somewhere else, yeah. but you're right. I mean, you're in the mountains and in a a rugged part too. Like it, it feels mm-hmm. like that that area specifically to me feels like rural Montana or something. You're out there. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely. I mean, it's still it's a large ranching community, so um, it's definitely it's rural, and it's a beautiful place. And I, uh, you know, I like seeing it get more recognition. But it's all. I also like that there are not a lot of crowds there. Uh, but you never want to get stuck there in a snowstorm or a windstorm. Uh, it's probably one of the windiest and hardest places to drive in the country when uh, something like that hits. I can definitely attest. Been been stuck there before. Yeah. When did when did you or how did you start getting interested in going to Nepal and making that such a big part of your life? And 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 also, does the area in Nepal you work in feel similar to home in a way? Uh yeah. So I. I I grew up uh, hiking a lot. I, I, I've hiked all the 14ers around fair play and I wanted to get into mountaineering. Uh, I never really did, but when I went to college, I was still interested in the uh, culture behind it. And I was studying, I wanted to study abroad and I thought, why not go to Nepal or Tibet or something like that? I was pretty naive on it. And I found a program uh, on the school for international training. That was a semester program in Nepal studying culture and development which was kind of perfect fit for my economics focus where I was studying economics and environmental economics. So I chose to do that in the first semester of 2006. And I ended up in Nepal for four months and I fell in love with the country. 
we were there when uh, the king finally gave up at the end of the Civil War, and Nepal transitioned into what you could describe mostly as a democracy. Um, and while I was there, I mean, we went to the mountains, we did everything, uh, but I did a bit of a research project on the water systems in Kathmandu and developed a Fulbright proposal, Fulbright scholarship. So when I graduated college, I actually won the Fulbright scholarship to go back to Nepal and got to spend another 10 months there. And that's kind of how my adventures there started. And I got to mountain bike a lot when I was on Fulbright. So I kind of been there pretty much ever since. It feels, in some ways, it's like home. I think uh, you, you gain elevation really fast, but Nepal is also more geographically diverse. So you have everywhere as low as, what, a thousand feet above sea level, and it can go above 100 degrees on a regular basis. Uh, and you obviously have Mount Everest. And it's like if you drove from Denver to Fairplay, that same distance you go from, uh, you know, a thousand feet to go to the top of Mount Everest almost uh, as the crow flies. So it is similar, but it's also in a lot of ways a lot hotter and a, lo a little bit different like that way. So I actually it took me a while to get used to the heat of Nepal, of Kathmandu. Oh, that's so interesting. So, so, so what would you say about the experience there? kept you coming back or kept kept you staying what 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 was intriguing you about nepal i mean i i love the people i'm now married to nepali but i think that was a byproduct of me coming back um i i liked what i was doing i was working on water uh and i saw a lot of opportunities to you know help not help as in charitable help but like actually start a company around um rainwater collection and water filtration so i wanted to work on that after my fulbright so I, I stuck around trying different ways to work on that. And I ended up with the UN for a bit uh, in the interim, got involved in some solar stuff, um, and then eventually ended up starting my own company in 2011. That and mountain biking. Um, I got really close to the Nepali mountain bike community, and they're a really impressive uh, group of people. Uh, they started off on very simple bikes, and now some of them are elite. I know people... Who, Nepalis have completed in, competed in the marathon distance, world championships, the Enduro World Series, um, and they can ride like really well, and they train really hard. So I was riding like two to three hours a day every morning before work, uh, and I think it's a combination of both those that kept me there. Uh, after I started my business, obviously I'm I'm there, I've been there since. I'm always impressed when with folks that start a business in a, in another country that that they're they're not from or not used to. What was that like? I know it's kind of off topic of adventure sports, but I'm just curious. I mean, it was, it's hard to compare to here because I've not started a company here yet. I was entrepreneurial high school, but I never started a company. But one thing I think that was most important about it was I, I developed a network. So my business partner I met through Toastmasters and our other partners who were technician uh, Plumbers, I'm, I had met them through my research in Fulbright and stayed in touch. So starting a business wasn't that challenging. Now, as a foreigner married to Nepali, you know, there's a bit of gray area around on how to operate the business with foreign investment and everything like that. And that's where it's a, a bit challenging. And the laws are constantly changing. As I mentioned, in 2006, the king gave up and became a democracy. So every time a new government comes, which the government changes there 
like almost every year, some new policies introduced and things. So there are some ups and downs. Um, I just think there's a lot of opportunity um, because still the, the population is uh, how I, I really enjoy working with the people of Nepal. And there are a lot of problems to solve. And I think it's not just about charity. It's a lot. It's a lot about creating jobs. We employ 25 people uh, there. So that's been a, a positive side of it. How did you how did you see the problem that your business is solving? Is it just like you said, is it is there, there's just a lot of problems to solve? You, you chose to focus on one of those problems. Yeah, so my my research on my Fulbright was about the economics of urban rainwater collection. So basically, the issue in in uh, Kathmandu and a lot of growing cities in Asia is they don't have uh, snowmelt fed water water sources, or they're reliant on groundwater. So, oh, I'd say about twenty percent of the population has to buy water in trucks, and another forty to fifty percent are reliant on wells and deep bore wells. So the municipal government supply can only meet a certain part of the demand. And as a result, a lot of people have bought a lot of tanks. And also none of the water that comes out of the tap is drinkable. And almost none of the wastewater is treated. So there's an opportunity to kind of create a set of solutions, a lot of which nonprofits were already kind of working on. Um, but they none of them wanted to, none of them had the the had linked it to business opportunities and i saw that people were paying so much for water that it was an opportunity to provide them a much more sustainable and modern solution using localized technology that could be could save people money and for example a household that was buying a truck of water like a, a 2500 gallon truck of water can pay that back the cost of their rainwater collection system to substitute six months of purchases, they can pay that back in two years. And similarly, a house that's boiling their water, if instead they put in a water filter, can pay that back, the cost of gas back in under a year. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity to provide, build the value chain to provide those solutions and employ a lot of Nepalis who right now would be going to the Middle East because plumber and technical tradespeople end up in the Middle East building the world cup stadium or something like that. So that's kind of where we saw the cap. So fascinating. So interesting. And it's something you would, you'd have to pick up on it as you spend time there. Oh, wow. So, well, let's switch gears to, uh, to mountain biking. The, the main sport that you were into or that you're into while you're there. What, what, what was that like? What is mountain biking in Nepal? Like, I mean, that's such a big question. I'm, I'm sure it's just absolutely incredible yeah. everywhere you look. Is it pretty well established? It is now, for sure. When I started there in 2007, 2008 on my Fulbright, there were maybe 50 to 100 casual mountain bikers. There was a group of five to seven who were really, really talented and really good. And I became pretty good friends with them. So we used to ride every morning, as I said. Um, and they were dedicated. I remember one day, one time on my Fulbright riding 14 out of 15 days for two to three hours every morning before going out to do my research at 9 a.m. That's how dedicated they are. And the trails there, it's a mix. It's a, like you have paved roads, but then you have a lot of unpaved roads that you know are dirt, four-wheel drive. And then you have a lot of walking paths, whether it's between the rice paddy terraces or whether it's going down a hill that is 
you know, some of the steeper hills you you've seen. So, and then also it's become popular as a, a tourism sport. So a lot of bike routes go on the trekking routes and those trails are a bit more developed, but in some places they're, they're not. So it's, it's diverse. Um, and it's becoming more and more developed. They're probably, I mean, they have an event every year called the Kathmandu Kora, which a Kora means to circle around a, a Buddhist religious site. So they ride in between 30 to 60 miles, depending on the group. And I think the participation numbers in the last year they had it, obviously two years ago be, before COVID, was over a thousand people actually participated in that. And most of them completed the 30 mile version of it. So that's how much it's changed. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is awesome. What, well, what, what, what can you say about, um, all right, that's just the, the trails and participation. Tell us about the, some of the events you started doing. What did, did you, know, I know you've done the yak attack six times. Was that the first thing you did or did, did you build up to that? And what, and what is that? So I didn't do that first. Uh, I started just doing the local races and a local cross country race was like 20 to 40 miles through like a lot of terrain, three to four hours, uh, brutal beat you up stuff. And I got pretty, uh, good at those. And I decided that I wanted to take the next step and there was yak attack, which just started. And then there was another one in India, um, a, I think it was seven days at a time called MTB Hemanshal. So I decided to do that one first because I think I had a scheduling conflict with Yak Attack. And also Yak Attack felt at that time a bit more intimidating than that race. So I signed up for the one in India and I trained, I don't, I mean, an unnecessary amount. I mean, it, I was riding 120 miles minimum every week on dirt road trails so like 15 20 hours a week minimum and like that that was now i know too much but i did the race and i did well i had a couple bad days you know but my teammate and i we, we did decent in the duo category and we held our own uh and the nepalis won it uh which was great and then two years later i managed to free up my schedule and do the yak attack and that was a whole different experience and i was hooked so to elaborate the yak attack is now in its 12 or 14th version i think so it started in 2007 um and it started as a race around the annapurna circuit so the annapurna circuit is a 14 to 21 day trek if you're walking uh, around the Annapurna mountain range. And it's probably the most popular trek in Nepal. And a guy named Phil Evans teamed up with, uh, some Nepalis to start a ra the race and basically mountain bike around it. And when it started there, it was a lot of walking trails. So there was a lot of hike a bike and you go from 2000 feet to 17,500 feet. Um, when I started it, in, or when I started doing it in 2012, it had been modified a bit. So the distance had been extended. So you actually rode from Kathmandu to the circuit and then rode the circuit in 10 days. And the distance from Kathmandu to the circuit itself was over 150 miles. And then the circuit is another 150 miles. And there were like two to three hours of hike-a-bike each day. And then obviously getting up to the pass, going from 14,000 to 17,000 feet 
you're carrying your bike for a normal semi elite athlete, two and a half to three hours up for two to three miles. And some people take as long as six just to get up. So it's really diverse. Um, it's not as hard as I just made it sound to encourage other people to participate because we've actually seen a lot of people set a goal for a year out and do the race. A lot of people who are moderate mountain bikers, but that's that's a description. I mean, and it's evolved. So now it's it's stopped going from Kathmandu and now it just does the circuit, uh, but explores a lot of side trails. So now it's a seven day race with a couple of side loops and a lot more single track again. Uh, less hike a bike because they built a road, a Jeep road. Uh, it's still no picnic climbing up that road, uh, but that's what it is right now. So, so are most of the hiking trails, the popular hiking routes, trekking routes in, in Nepal, are they also cyclable? They up until recently didn't allow you to cycle to Everest base camp. I think they may have started to change that. Uh, I do know some people who, carried their bike up or, or helicopter. I can't remember to base camp and rode back down. Uh, but a lot of them, yeah, you can cycle. Uh, riding the Annapurna circuit is a fairly popular tour. Uh, Monoslu, which is another one of the highest uh, mountains in the world, uh, there is a circuit around that. That's also a mountain bike tour. It's a little more advanced. Uh, again, a, a lot of hike bike, but also a lot of really, really uh, good riding. Tell us about you doing the yak attack in the sense of like, do you have any stories? How did it go for you? Oh yeah. Uh, any, uh, anything a, interesting I mean, happen out there for you? I, so the yak attack, uh, it used to happen in March, which meant that it was kind of the end of winter, but you could still get snowed on. And the first year I did it, there was almost, there was a bit of snow going up to 17,000 feet and some ice patches and stuff going down. And that descent, you know, it, it, it scared me, and I had a nice little crash on it. I got up to the top, pretty far up in the pack. I think I was fifth to the top. Um, by the time I was done, I was eighth or ninth, um, and I could have been a lot further behind. I'm a bad descender. I think that pass has taught me how. The next year, we went over that pass in three feet of snow. So you were, like, literally sliding down the pass, holding your bike up above your head, punching through waist deep snow. It was a lot of fun. Uh, the next year, it was the same thing, except with an ice layer on top of the snow. That was not fun. Um, I got up to the top fast because it did, it was pretty easy, but then going down was one of the, I, I don't know, some people just flew down, but I, I, despite being from Colorado, something got to me that year. But now we've switched it to November, and it's usually not covered in snow. And it's one of the most epic descents uh, and justifies. I, I mean, I bought a dropper post on my mountain bike in 2016. I had waited for a long time because I thought they weren't reliable. And that thing changed my life. And I rode from the top to the bottom almost without getting off my bike and said, oh, oh, this is this is good. This, I mean, this is the best change in the race. Um, and I've had a variety of experience. You know, I've watched somebody have heat stroke in the low stages and help them out. Um, you know, hiking, hiking a bike. I mean, I remember like a three hour long hike one day chatting with somebody, chatting with friends in the race because the road had, uh, the army was working on the road and they didn't tell us and they closed the road. So we had to do the hike a bike around it that we weren't planning on doing it. And they had to neutralize that part of the stage. And it's the camaraderie in the race is great. I mean, you're, 
you're doing one of the hardest races in the world, but you got to meet some really, really interesting people. Man, what it, what an adventure. You've done it six times now. Uh, has, yeah. has there ever been a time where, um, you mentioned the snow, the differences in the weather, uh, it, yeah. ha- have you ever come across anything pretty unusual, pretty unique to Nepal, I guess you could say, or, or anything that's, um, that's been a major obstacle on any of the, the yak attacks? At least two stages have been closed because of unplanned road construction. They just decided <laughs> to close the road. That is a South Asia, a lot of Nepal thing. I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's an amazing race that something different probably happens every year and up until recently it was never won by a foreigner um until a guy named Corey wallace who's the mountain bike uh 24-hour world champion he came in 2014 the first time and like pretty much every other professional that's come he had some stomach bug most of the normal people that come won't get it but some reason the professional racer their first time they come they get sick i don't know they got used to they don't anymore i can explain why later uh, but the two years later he came back and he came back two weeks early and just camped out at high altitude and went and set the course record. Uh, and that was, and then the top Nepali went from being a racer to decided to actually join the business of the race. So he's actually been helping out. So, um, it's a lot more competitive now. Um, and it's a lot, a lot of fun. That's really know. cool. That's awesome. Are, are you planning to do it more? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I am. I don't know about this year. I We're not making... I say we because I'm also now... I also help out a little bit with partnerships and stuff uh, for the race, uh, both locally and internationally. Uh, we're not sure whether... It will happen because of COVID. Uh, so we'll make a decision about six weeks out because uh, six weeks will give you enough time to be able to tell whether there's going to be a, a third wave in the pace of the third wave in the country. Uh, but I definitely plan to do it again and probably multiple times, uh, whether it's this year personally might be unlikely because I might I'd probably still be in the U.S. Uh, but it's definitely one of my favorite races. Um, so hopefully we'll do it again. Tell us, tell us what, what, what do you think the scene of mountain biking is doing in Nepal? Is it going to continue to grow, you know, COVID pending? Is it going to, you know, bounce back and can continue to rise or, um, is it going other places based on what you know? What, what, what can you tell us? Well, I hope two things happen. So there was a, there's a good race scene. Uh, there was, and I hope, to see more regular local domestic races. Uh, a lot of Nepalis are, they have world-class talent. So the ability to race on a regular basis is good for them. Uh, and there needs to be a new generation of that. There's a really fast growing enduro scene. Uh, there's a rider who there's been a video made out of, made of him called RJ Ripper. He's a world-class downhill rider. I mean, the stuff he can do on that bike, and he's also sponsored by Yeti Cycles. So I hope to see more international brands coming in and sponsoring local riders because they're they're really talented. I mean, some of these guys are giving names like Corey Wallace a run for their money in long-distance races. I mean, there's a Yak Attack had a sister race in Sri Lanka called Rumble in the Jungle, and Nepali guys always come in on the podium 
uh, with professionals from other countries in that race. Uh, and they've been to Europe and won races. So I hope to see that happening. And then mountain biking as tourism is it's one of the faster growing tourism sectors in Nepal. So I think that will continue. And I hope they expand outside of just a couple core areas where trips are and start doing areas more in the east and western Nepal. That's one thing about Nepal is everybody knows it from the 8,000 meter peaks, especially Mount Everest. But Nepal is, I believe, the second most biodiverse and first most geographically diverse country in the world. And from the far east to the far west, it's it's beautiful everywhere. So I hope to see mountain biking tours uh, and adventurers go more places. And same with trekkers, everybody. I mean, I've been to the majority of the districts in Nepal personally, and I've never not been knocked off my feet by the beauty. We had a uh, a guest recently that, not recently, this was yeah, literally like a year or two ago, <laughs> but he, he, he went to f- do a first descent of a river via paddleboarding ah. um, in Whoa. Nepal and was in like the foothills the whole time. It was like incredible. We absolutely loved it. And it was like, oh yeah, there's other things to do there besides trekking yeah. and, and, and climbing the world's tallest mountains. Uh, there's so much there. And so that that's really yeah. cool to hear someone else say that as well. I mean, even the Kathmandu Valley, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the world. So the pollution is uh, horrible, but when it's not polluted, like, you could put together a stage race just within the Kathmandu Valley and have six new, six different amazing race days every day. There's so many trails. A lot of them are unfortunately being turned into roads unnecessarily, some necessary, but like Kathmandu itself in May before the monsoon really kicks in, but after the winter, so the pollution's uh, leveled off and it's air is much cleaner. It's one of the most beautiful places, cities in the world. Um, I love it, like there. I love the hills. How, how I mean, far are mountains. the mountains from Kathmandu? Uh, maybe fifty miles uh, north, forty fifty miles north, and you you can get pretty high. I mean, Kathmandu itself is surrounded by hills. Uh, you know, ten thousand, twelve thousand feet. Right, twelve thousand feet is the highest, about a little less. Uh, but then you go over a valley, you drop back down to twelve hundred feet, and then you basically just keep going straight up. Up, 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 up until 21,000 feet. Uh, obviously, you can't get that high as a trekker. You have to be a climber, uh, but it's not that far. Like I could, I could bike to the base camp of some of the treks in a eight hours or something. Wow, S- similar to Denver a little bit. It's it's not it's not too far. It's it is. Not, it, it, it's just it out is. there in the distance on the horizon. Yeah, outside of the humidity and the monsoon, it is very similar to Colorado in a lot of ways. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. That's awesome. What What do you see uh, internationally? Are there a lot of folks more and more? I mean, the, the the word about Nepal has been out for so long, but are you seeing just more and yeah. more tours and more and more folks settling there, almost like you splitting time even? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, tourism has been growing. Uh, the earthquake uh, slowed it down for a bit, but I believe before COVID, we we're crossing a million tourists a year, which is not a lot. Um, and if a, but at the same time, if a lot more come, that's why I say I hope they spread out a bit more. Because it, as uh, the guy who do, did the stand-up paddleboarding uh, and others know, the foothills, like you don't even need to go to the mountains. So I hope to see more. There are a lot of expatriates like me. Uh, it's not 
Nepal's government is a little makes it a little challenging sometimes. Um, I'm married to a, a Nepali who has our her own story. Um, so, but we're like so for me, I'm allowed to live there year round, but I have to go renew my visa every year. So there are obstacles like that that do prevent a lot of foreigners from like say settling there, which is a mixed thing. I mean, I think some foreigners going there. Uh, and settling just to help or, you know, be missionaries and things like that. Maybe those aren't necessary. You know, like a lot of people go there and think that just because they're from the West, that uh, they know everything um, or impose their ideas. And running a, a business that is mostly Nepal ideas by Nepali staff, I've been on the other end of that. And that's also not very pleasant. So I can see why the government is a little bit um, protective. Although that's not the reason they are, I think. So, but I do see a good growth in tourism, and that makes me happy that a lot more tourists are going. Well, is there is there anything else you'd like to share uh, before before we go? What what are your plans with with being there or in this in the country? And uh, yeah, anything else you want to share? I mean, I know I described Yak Attack as a hard race, uh, and it is, but. It's an awesome race, and I hope to see more uh, participants in the, the future because I've basically I've seen a lot of people, a lot of expats in Nepal who were there, you know, for two or three years for a organizational thing, and they'll start out by basic mountain biking and be able to train and do the Yak Attack within a year. And I hope that Yak Attack and other races and other events uh, and more people come and visit Nepal and see the beauty of the country and the beauty of the people. Uh, me personally, I've been in Nepal, I mean, since 2007, really pretty much every year. This is the first time I've been back in the U S more than three to four months. Um, and I think my company's on a, it has a good path. Uh, I have a good business partner. I have a great team, um, uh, multiple good, but, uh, I have two business partners who are excellent and I have a, a core senior team who are have really taken it to the next level. So, and I'm also looking at maybe I won't say settling back here, but just coming back here and seeing how my uh, skill set around sustainability and business fit into the U S and solar and things like that, either part-time as well, uh, well continuing to support the growth of uh, what I do in Nepal uh, and mountain biking everywhere. I'd like to do some more races. I've done, you know, I've, like I mentioned, I've done the one in Sri Lanka. I've done quite a few in Colorado, a few multiple times. But I'd like to get back into the race scene here and have some more fun and do some bike packing and um, marathons and tr- long, long, long backpacking trips and stuff too. Bike packing—that's that's that's my sport of choice. Just just don't have the time yeah. to do it right now. You know, it's like ah, yeah, I need, I need two to three weeks and uh, it's can't can't do that with a with it with, with a full-time job unfortunately <laughs> yeah and I, I have a dog that i bought from or brought from nepal with me uh she's been back a couple times and she's a street dog but she loves mountain biking if i leave with her, my mountain bike without her she gets she gets grumpy i went on a ba- bike packing trip we might not have a good relationship after that so i might have to <laughs> lean uh you know fast pack running or something like that to, to be able to bring the dog with me um you know, she's, she's gone from being a street dog to an adventure dog who's done the act attack, by the way. Uh, oh, she came with us, walked over the pass, and then she left with the support crew, uh, walked over the pass, and I cropped. We left a couple hours later because we were on bikes, and I passed her about 
I don't know, 100, 200 meters from the summit, and she escaped from the support crew and started chasing me down the pass. And then ever, ever since then, hadn't let me leave on my mountain bike without her. So uh, How did she fare on the whole funny. yak attack? Yeah, she went in the vehicle, and then she hiked the parts that uh, vehicles didn't go. And, uh, yeah. The, we, as yak attack, we also do a lot of support for uh, street dogs through an organization called Helping Paws. So both in Sri Lanka and Nepal. A lot of work, uh, spaying and neutering, arranging adoptions, and uh, cleaning up, you know, the local breeds. A, lot, a couple of Nepali mountain bike racers have adopted uh, local dogs off the street from our efforts and yeah, stuff like that. So um, it's good representation bringing a former street dog around the around the course. Got me excited to go to Nepal. I've never been, and I and it's Beautiful. been something we've talked about. I bet on. 50 episodes on this show and I, it's obviously something that's thrown around a lot in the adventure world yeah. and for a good reason i mean the rafting scene is growing some of the toughest rivers in the world like nepal is a lot more than the mountains culture is amazing biking is great but even just going there and driving around the country like and just seeing the different areas and then you have the jungles and safaris and rhinos and elephants and that biodiversity is second to probably what Costa Rica. Yeah. Highest point, obviously Mount Everest, lowest point, 194 feet. If that oh, wow. doesn't show you high. some, uh, some diversity there in a, in a country, yeah. probably the size of, of Florida, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the temperatures are up in the range of Arizona's high temperatures and humid. It's unreal. Gosh, I can't yeah. imagine that the, the diversity you see in such a relatively short space or a small space in short amount of time when traveling. A um, hundred different languages spoken, I believe. I can't remember the last number. Unfortunately, there's some going extinct. Uh, like I speak Nepali fluently, and there are people that I there are people that I can't talk with or who are from such a different region. It's I mean, it's a tiny country. Like I go to the far west, and they'll speak Nepali, but the accent is hard. And sometimes Kathmandu-based Nepalis will go to the far west and I will almost have an easier time discussing with them because of the foreign... Well, I haven't been there in a while. My accent, or I my accent's a little better now, but as a foreigner, I had a, a weird accent. They had a different accent. People in Kathmandu had a different accent. So I almost had an easier time communicating uh, in my Nepali. That's how diverse the country is. That's so cool. Well, when do you think you'll be going back? Supposed to go back in October, but uh, that might change. Uh, probably will change. It's not because of COVID. It's just because I just need to maybe explore new things and see if there's different ways to do different things. I haven't been in the U.S. in a long time, for a long time in a while. So might be a, might be here years ago. Um, but I'm on the phone every day with Nepal. So might not be there, but part of me is always. That's awesome. Well, Tyler, thanks for joining the uh, the Adventure Sports Podcast. I, I I'm always interested to hear about you know different parts of the world and getting folks to to get out there and have some fun and somewhere else they've never been. Yeah, thanks for having me. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. 
And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>